There's a big debate about pennies right now. Canada, and uh, there's several, Australia, I think the Netherlands, uh, they, they, they've all eliminated their low-denomination coins, whatever their version is of the penny. In 2012, Canada eliminated theirs, and for good reason. Coining pennies is pretty much a money-losing proposition, and people really don't need them anymore. Now that we've got debit cards and we've got uh, pretty much everything I buy is through PayPal or something online. But the truth is, uh, in the United States, we're not too different from the Canadians in that we, we kind of don't need pennies. Like They're not really integral to the currency uh, of the United States. Printing paper currency is hugely profitable uh, for the federal government. The $100 bill is one of the nation's most valuable exports. Didn't know that. Quarters and dimes are moneymakers too, but it costs $1.43 to produce just 100 pennies. Last year, that make, uh, cost taxpayers like you and I $39 million just to make pennies. And for what? The federal government makes and distributes coins to facilitate commerce, but not much in this country can be bought less than, for less than 10 or 5 cents. Uh, thanks to the magic of inflation, what cost a penny in 1950 costs about a dime today. Average American workers earn nearly a penny a second in 2015. It's literally not worth our time to bend down and pick up a penny off of the sidewalk. <laughs> in effect, eliminating the penny means all retail prices would end in a zero or in five. Some prices would rise a few pennies, and some would be rounded down. Prices that end in 99 cents are common, and there's a reason for this. For somebody who's involved in retail, um, penny proponents like me, we argue about the the psychology of pricing. And, uh, you know, the truth is, when somebody sees something that says $4.99, it's really $5, but they think that it's $4. My wife is guilty of this. She'll tell me, oh, it's... It's only it's only five dollars. No, it's six dollars. It's only you know like a hundred and some odd dollars. It's a hundred and ninety nine dollars, Ash. That's two hundred. Okay, no, no. <clears throat> but the truth is, if we increased and decreased to round these numbers, it would basically amount to a one percent sales tax on us, uh, increased sales tax on us nationwide. But Robert Wapples. My last name's Lepo, but his last name is Wapples, so I have something to feel good about. An economist at Wake Forest University actually examined this claim in 2007 by looking at pricing data from a chain of convenience stores. He reported that the savings from prices that were rounded down would actually roughly offset the prices of those that were rounded up. Indeed, consumers actually benefit. Like I say, Retailers, like they like the 99-cent pricing. But Americans, as people, we kind of like those shiny pieces in general. We don't want to let them go, even though there's really not a whole lot of copper in them anymore. In a 2014 poll, 71% of respondents said that they do pick up pennies off the ground when they see one. And 43% said they would be disappointed or angry if the government stopped making pennies. Now, I don't know what is going on in your life to be angry about stopping and making pennies. I understand the disappointment thing, but the anger argument, I just don't understand. 
43% said that they would be disappointed or angry. That's crazy. Hollywood director Aaron Sorkin, he posited through an episode of The West Wing that the government keeps making pennies because Abraham Lincoln is on the front. And lawmakers from Illinois in particular are reluctant to eliminate this guy because they like we've got a person who is sort of in the roundabout way from Illinois. And, you know, they, Abraham Lincoln, he's the guy. Whatever the case, no matter how many arguments are made for its removal or reallocation, the humble penny persists. So this is what I want to talk to us about today. The power of a penny. The power of a penny. You know, the truth in the scriptures is that they are absolute. It's something that as a Christian, I have to contend with. I have to believe that if I'm going to base every part of my life off of the Bible, that the Bible has to be entirely true. I have to believe that. I have to believe that God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then is he God? It's a real existential question that we have to ask ourselves. And what is important to God? If what is important to God is actually important to something or someone that created all living things, then I have to, by extension, believe that those things have to be important to me. They frame our Constitution. They frame our Bill of Rights. They frame our just basic interactions with each other. It's pretty simple stuff, the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not steal. Pretty basic. You don't really need the Bible to tell you that stealing is bad. The rules out there say that stealing is bad. If you have a penny and I want to take that penny, it's not my penny to take. As a Christian, every part of my life must be dictated by the Word of God. And there are some really interesting things in the Word of God, some really cool nuances. And as a young man, there were certain books of the Bible that really got me. My favorite book of the Bible, in the whole Bible, people laugh at me when I say this, but I love the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one of the coolest books of the Bible. As a 12, 13-year-old boy who was really sort of playing around with the Word of God, was raised in church, but really hadn't really made it his own, when I opened up the Bible, I could go through Lamentations, which is the most depressing book that you'll ever read, or Numbers, which is also, for somebody who doesn't care about math, another one of the most depressing books that you'll ever read. I don't care that begat, who begat, who, and whatever. It doesn't matter to me. There's people out there that really care about that sort of thing, and I know that it's there because it's word, the Word of God, but it's not for me. But when I open up the book of Judges, and I got to read really cool stuff. See, we, we grew up in Sunday school, and David and Goliath and Moses and, and Noah and, you know, Adam and Eve, those stories were, you know, they're ubiquitous. They are, they are, they are every Christian, even non-Christians pretty much know the gist of a lot of those stories, right? David and Goliath, little kid kills a big guy with a, with a rock, right? That's basically the gist of it. But when you start getting into the book of Judges, it's really interesting because you start to get into some of the more cool in my opinion, stories. Like uh, when the children of Israel were trapped, they were in captivity, and, uh, and there was a king that was ruling over them. And uh, there was, a, a, of course, there was a judge, right? The book of Judges, they had judges that ruled over Israel. And uh, they judged the people for God. And some of these guys helped 
get the people of Israel out of sticky situations, and some of them judged them and put them into sticky situations because of God's judgment. But, you know, something like in the book of Judges, uh, chapter, I think it's chapter 3, got Ehud, you know, and uh, the people are in captivity, and they're being ruled by a foreign uh, dictator, basically. And, and, uh, and you know, you, you have where uh, it's sort of this, I don't know, this godfather, you know, sort of mafia situation where they go in, and, 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 the, pro, uh, and the judge, uh, he says, look, I need, to, I need to say something to the king. And so he's, I got a secret message for you. And so, you know, the king brings him into his chamber, and he's like, it's really secret, so I got to, you know. There's a lot of people around here. You know, maybe you could empty the room out a little bit. And so, of course, the king puts this decree, you know, everybody needs to leave and shut the door behind him and, and locks the door. And he says, look, hey, it's really important. I got to tell you something. And he says, I, I got to whisper it in your ear. So the king was a big man, the Bible says. And uh, he was overweight. And uh, he, he, you know, he leans, he leans over to, to, to hear what this secret, the state secret is that, that the, the judge is going to tell him. And, and under, under his cloak, Ehud pulls out a dagger, and he stabs him in the stomach. And the Bible says that he plunged the dagger so deep, and the guy was overweight, that his belly went around the, 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 the knife that was stuck in his stomach, and he couldn't get it out. And the people that were, all the servants or whatever, they thought that this king was in the bathroom for a long time. And so they knock on the door, and he doesn't come to the door. And, they, and, 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 and so they bust in the door, and he's dead. And the, the, proffer, the, uh, the judge, he had got to slip out. And for a 13-year-old kid, like, that's really interesting stuff. That's cool stories. This isn't like, oh, you know, this guy had a boat with a bunch of animals on it. Like, I'm tired of hearing that. Like, this is the real deal Hollywood stuff, right? And so I, I, I really, I, there was something about the book of Judges that I've always held so dear because it made the word of God come alive to me. It was stories that were so different than anything that I had really heard preached from the pulpit. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that there is a lesson in that story. I don't know what that lesson is, but it's a really cool story that I keep in my back pocket. I really like it. But there's all sorts of things in the Word of God that are so interesting. But there's something that starts from the very beginning, from how we were formed, is that God can take something out of nothing and make it great. In fact, that's his whole bag. That's all he is interested in doing. When he looked out on the expanse of nothingness, before he formed the heavens and the earth, the Bible says that the earth was shapeless, it was formless, it was out in the void, and there was nothing there. And God was attracted to that. He didn't say, oh, let me find something that's got a spark in it. He wanted to find something that he had to get involved with that only he could do. And so we know that the account of creation in Genesis where he starts to form, then he separates the firmament, and he separates the sky and the heavens, and he, he, he starts to bring out birds, and things spring out of the ground, and there's water, and there's all sorts of light and dark, and really you know, becomes what it is today. And then... Everything is good, and he wants to form man. And what does he do? He reaches down in the dirt, and he forms man out of dirt. And he breathes the breath of life into him, and the Bible says that it became a living soul. He wants something out of nothing. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Where do you start? That's the question. Where do you start? How does this start? 1 Corinthians 1, 
verses 27 through 29 says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may fulfill the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Now, it's God's whole attitude of finding something out of nothing. But if I look back the course of my life and I compare where I came from and what I was, what God I feel like is making me into, and I compare that to the way that 2020 has been, sometimes I can't help but ask questions of what is going on. (laughs) 2020, for all intents and purposes, has been unprecedented. We're hearing a lot about it. It's been nonstop. The economy has shifted dramatically. We've got a healthcare crisis. We've got racial tensions. We've got political tensions. We've got tensions everywhere. And the truth is that the church is made up of all of that stuff out there. We live, we exist in the world. We can't separate ourselves from the world. We can't live outside of the world. We can be in the world but not of the world, but we're still in the world. I'm a realist. It's just who I am. I can't help but separate you know, the knowledge that there's stuff going on out there, some things I can be a part of and I can help change. Other things are outside of my purview or outside of my reach, beyond my, my reach. I just cannot change some stuff that's happening. But what's happened to us over the last year, and probably before that, but definitely over the last year, is that the church has been caught in the middle. Because the church is made up of differences. We have differences among us. And that's what makes the church such a beautiful tapestry of what it is. But unfortunately, we can sometimes let what's going on out there work its way into here. And sometimes what's going on in here to work its way into here. And that can be problematic. That can be problematic because suddenly what was differences that we can work side by side and still have an individuality becomes conformity, requirement to conform. You have to be like me because if you're not like me, then you're wrong, Valerie, right? So I have to ask, what is it that makes me different? What makes me different? What makes me not get caught up in what's going on out there? If there's anything that we can see through creation, I'm trying to be very mindful of my time, and there's a couple of notes here that I'm going to skip over. But if there's something that we can look at from creation, from God's interaction all through the Old Testament, God's decrees all through the New Testament, all my personal experiences in the 21st century, there's something that I can see that God desires, that God is, is complete. The word of God is complete. The word of God is whole. It is forever settled. The word says that heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or one tittle of my law will fail. 
that the word is forever settled. We can't separate the word of God from the essence of God. John says that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. So we can't change that God is somehow separated from his word or that somehow the interpretation of God's word is it, it somehow allows us or gives us credence to do something that they couldn't do back in the day. Something that's sin is sin. It just is, right? It was sin at the beginning. It's sin now. All the stuff that was required in the Old Testament, all of the requirements to fulfill the law are still required in the New Testament. It's just a different avenue. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Now, we don't do animal sacrifices anymore because Jesus Christ came and he shed the last drop of blood that's ever needed for sin. But the blood is still required. That didn't change in the New Testament. The Old Testament law is actually an easier law to keep than the New Testament one. Why? Because the Old Testament law just says, thou shalt not steal. So, Valerie, don't go out and take something that's not yours. The New Testament law, though, is a matter of the heart. It's not just rules and regulations written down on pieces of paper. For example, the Old Testament says, don't commit adultery, right? Don't run off with another woman. In the New Testament... The Bible says that if a man looks on a woman and lusts in his heart, that he is guilty of committing adultery. That's a harder thing to do because now it doesn't require action. It's a matter of our, my position here. So, I mean, how does that work? <laughs> what hope do we have? We have the grace of God. Now, I know that the, I was having a conversation with a guy this week. Uh, at work. And uh, I said, you know, we've complicated a lot of things in the Bible. They're simple, right? We've gotten mixed up and had to sort of theologically jockey some stuff because of positions or because of what we want. In fact, Paul says that men are guilty of resting the scriptures, W-R-E-S-T. It literally means to wrestle the scriptures. The context in that passage he's talking about is people take the scriptures and they twist them to make them fit their narrative or to fit what they want, right? And so an idea like grace has been really watered down. Grace is, you know, for a lot of people, is just freedom to be me. But there's a lot more to grace than just the freedom to be me. There is a spiritual aspect to that, and it's really hard to live like a Christian if we don't have God living in us. Now, I talked about this. You guys, the knaves, sorry for hearing me two weeks in a row, guys. It's just by chance. They were at Oakwood last week, <laughs> and uh, they wanted to hear Pastor Lane preach today, but I, I apologize. Maybe you can catch him next week, but... <laughs> but uh, I might have said this last week, so forgive me. Um, the weeks run together. But, you know, in the end, if I really look at the Word of God and I really take it for what it is, if I take, and don't just pick pieces, but I take it in its entirety and I apply it to my life, something like salvation is easy, right? Acts chapter 2 is, is the most simplistic form of salvation, right? Jesus ascends, you know, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he ascends into heaven, and before he ascends, he tells his disciples, he says, Terry in Jerusalem, wait for me, I'm going to send the Comforter. It's very clear that the Comforter is the Spirit of God, right? 
And so they are praying in Jerusalem, and they are in the upper room, and in Acts chapter 2, the, the, the Spirit of God falls for the first time and fills men's hearts with the presence of God. It doesn't any longer sit on the, tab- or on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It, it suddenly takes up residence in the hearts of men. And of course, people are standing around outside, and these people start speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, the Bible says, and people are confounded. They're asking, hey, these guys are drunk. What's going on? And of course, Peter stands up, and we find in Acts chapter 2, and he stands up with the elect of the eleven, so he's not shooting from the hip. He's, he's, he's unified with his brothers, and he says this. He says, men and brothers, these men are not drunk like you suppose. And then he goes into what is happening. And he talks about the Jesus that you crucified. This is him fulfilling a prophecy that was written hundreds of years before that you can go back and read in the what we call the Old Testament, but in the law back in the day. And the Bible says that the people that were there were pricked in their hearts, and they asked this question, men and brethren, what must we do? Or some translations take it further, and they say, what must we do to be saved? The idea is, what's the next step for us? And it says in Acts chapter 2, a lot of us know this, then Peter said unto them, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Wait a second, I thought that baptism was just an outward sign of an inward work. No, no, no. It is to remit sins, the Bible says. It literally washes the sins off of you. And you'll receive the promise or the gift of the Holy Ghost. And it goes on to say, he seals it up. The promise is for you and for your children. And any afar uh, off, any as many as the Lord our God shall call. That means like forever, right? That's what he's talking about, forever. And they had a great, you know, everybody got the Holy Ghost and they got baptized and they added a bunch of people, a couple thousand people to the church that day. There is a nuance there, though, because Peter is the guy who cursed when they asked him if he knew Jesus when Jesus was going in to be judged. I don't know that guy. He shouts off some expletives. Of course, he's fulfilling what Jesus has already prophesied to him. He said, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows, right? And so here he is. He's denying Jesus. He's trying to get in the way before that happens. When the men come into the garden, they want to take Jesus away. When they want to arrest him, he grabs the sword out of his, you know, this righteous indignation and cuts off the ear of one of the guards. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? I appreciate your zeal, but what are you doing right now? All throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, we find men of God who are flawed. In fact, all of them were flawed. Abraham lies two times about Sarah being his wife because she was really pretty. And he was afraid that when Pharaoh asks, if this, he says, no, it's my sister because he's worried for his life. He lies about it. We know that Jacob is after his twin brother Esau, steals his birthright. His name means supplanter. Right? He runs off and he goes through this whole journey of coming to God. We know that Moses kills an Egyptian man, then doubts God pretty much through the whole process of him trying to get his people, out, even though he's being obedient, trying to get the people of Israel out of Egypt. Doubts him. You look at Gideon. Gideon is threshing wheat, the Bible says, behind a wine press. This is another one of my judges' stories that I really like. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says, he says, Gideon, Thou mighty man of valor, I want you to help my people get out from under this umbrella or this yoke of the Midianites. And Gideon's like, I don't know if you noticed, but I don't, there's not a lot about me that's, that's worth it. 
And God says this, really interesting. He says, and the Lord looked upon him and said, go in this thy might. What an interesting statement to make. God didn't say, go in my might, Gideon. He said, go in thy might. And thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And then he asks this question, as Jesus always, or as God always does. He's really good at asking questions that he already knows the answer to and that you know he already knows the answer to. He says, have I not sent thee? There's a nuance in that scripture. He says, go in your might. I'm telling you, you're good enough. And you're good enough because I am sending you. I know that you don't feel like you're worth it. I know that you don't feel like you have it all together. I know that you are the least in your tribe, the Bible says. And I know that you're the least in your family. And that there's nothing worth it that you can see in you. But I see something in you. And so we know the story. He goes and God says, all right, I want you to get a bunch of men. And he goes and gets a bunch of men. And he, he assembles the army. And God says, there's too many men. It's like, what are you talking about? There's too many men. He says, okay, I'm going to start. And so he, over a couple, the course of a couple of things, he weeds out the people. And so he's left with like 300 guys to fight an entire army. And they're already in captivity. So he knows that the army is capable of handling their business on the, out on the battlefield. And so he goes out and he says, okay, God says, look, I want you to sneak into the camp tonight. I'm going to show you. And so he sneaks into the camp. And he said, uh, the Bible says in Judges, I think it's uh, chapter 7, he says, uh, the Bible says that uh, he starts to listen into the tent of these Midianite soldiers. And he said, and one of these soldiers says, I had a dream last night. And the other guy says, what was it about? And he said, I saw a barley loaf of bread roll down the mountain and run over the tent. Now, it's important to understand the context of the barley loaf. Very quickly, if you don't know this already, there are basically two ways to make bread in the Bible. There's wheat bread and barley bread. Wheat bread was for rich people. Wheat bread was very similar to like bleached, uh, uh, what was it, like, um, like bleached sugar. Back at the turn of the century, poor people had brown sugar because it was unrefined, but rich people got white sugar. It's basically the same context. Barley is cheaper to produce. It is more abundant. And so the poor people got barley, but the rich people got wheat flour. This is the same thing that happens with the, 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 uh, the boy uh, when uh, Jesus needs to feed the 5,000, the multitude. And he says, I only got some fishes and some barley loaves. Jesus says, that's good enough. Bring it to me. He brings it to him, multiplies it. The idea is that the barley loaf isn't worth much. It's not worth much. And in every context that we see in the scripture, and I'm not going to go through all of them, it talks about barley. It's God utilizing something like that to do something great. Of course, the, the, the soldier says, I know what that barley, they interpret their own dream. They say, the barley loaf is Gideon. Well, Gideon is this small guy. I, he's got, the Bible doesn't say it, but he's got to be wondering, how did these people know who I am? Like, he's assembled, he's got a band of brothers of 300 people that's going to fight a gigantic army. Like, how do these guys know who I am? Maybe I'm a running joke. But of course, we know the end of the story. God ends up giving the, the, the Midianites to, to the Israelites, and they end up defeating them. It's just, it's an amazing, it's a blowout, right? It's a blowout. David and Goliath is the big underdog story. But in that story, when David is approached he, there's something different about David. 
than there is about Gideon. The words there are actually very similar. David is called the same thing, a mighty man of valor in the scripture. Go back and read it. He says, God says the same thing, that he is a mighty man of valor. It's a pretty remarkable context there because he's a kid. I've always imagined when Saul tried to put his armor on David, like a little kid trying to get dressed in his dad's clothes in front of the mirror, you know, like you see in those, in those, I I always, there was a point when I was a kid where like I wanted to wear all my dad's stuff, you know, and so my feet were maybe just a little too small. I was a teenager and I was like trying to get into, you know, big man shoes, you know, (laughs) and my dad, my dad's a pretty big guy and I remember trying to put on, you know, a sport coat or whatever and it hang down and it just wouldn't fit. And I've always sort of had that picture in my head, that thought. But we know the story about David and Goliath. We, it's, it's, it's a famous one. Even if you're not a Christian, you pretty much know David and Goliath's story, right? Of course, he goes out. He get, goes down to the brook. He gets the, the, the stones, and he slings the stones and hits Goliath in the head. And, of course, the stone isn't really what kills him. The Bible says then he grabs Goliath's sword that comes in handy later in his life, and he lifts it up and cuts off Goliath's head. And that's actually what kills him. But it's a, it's a pretty remarkable story that God uses this little boy to do something that is bigger than he could have done on his own. In fact, bigger than really the army was doing at the time. They're all hiding in, you know, in the trenches. So what's your point, Cam? This year has been tough. This year has been different, different than I've ever had. I'm not that old, but I mean, I've talked to people in our church as well. I've talked to elders in my life, and they've never seen anything like this before. There is something shaking in this world. There is something shifting in this world. And what it has done is crept into the church. Because we exist in this world, We are not separate from it. Unemployment hits people in the church the same way it hits people out there that don't go to church. Sickness and death hits the church the way that, same way it does out there for people that are not in the church. And if there's one thing that I have been able to really zero in on over the last year is the abundant fear in people in the church and outside of the church. People are afraid. They're afraid about how their bills are going to get paid. They're afraid about their sick loved ones. They're they're afraid about getting sick themselves. They're afraid about racial tensions and riots. They're afraid about, you know, all sorts of things on both sides of the political spectrum. They're afraid. People are scared. And if there's anywhere that the devil wants to hit us, it's in our mind. He hits when we're weak. He fights dirty. He did it to Jesus. If he did it to Jesus, you better believe he's going to do it to Cam. Jesus is on a 40-day fast in the desert, in the desert, okay? For somebody who spends a lot of time outdoors, that's not advisable. Don't go in the desert with no food or water for 40 days. Take it off your planner if it's on there. It doesn't work. And so Jesus is weak in his body, and the devil shows up, and he starts to tempt him, right? This is the temptation of Christ, where he's saying, I'm going to make you into something if you'll just go eat. You know, you can, you're, you're, you're God, right? Aren't you God? You could turn these rocks into bread. You're hungry, right? And he starts to sort of prey on the weakness 
of Jesus' flesh. Hits him right in his mind. That's the hardest part. If, has anybody ever done an extended fast before, like more than a day? <laughs> you ever done three, four, five, six days? I did one 40-day fast, and that was to figure out if we were going to relocate from Chicago, where we were last year, to here. And I really was looking for, seeking for God. Anybody who tells you that, you know, it's good, you just got to get over the hump and you're not hungry anymore has never done a four-day fast. I was hungry every day. <laughs> and if there's one thing that I craved when I was on my 40-day fast, it was Hattie B's hot chicken. I wanted some Hattie B's hot chicken so bad. Every day I thought about oh, some Hattie B's would be really good right now. I wish I could have some Hattie B's chicken. But it occupies your mind, something when you're hurting. Just it's there. And it's a good window to get in. If there's anything that I know, it's that right now people are afraid. And we're small. I'm just me. I've got a wife. I got two beautiful daughters. That's what I'm responsible for. Some of us have homes, some of but our footprint in this world is pretty small. I'm not special. My family doesn't have a name. I don't come from money. There's nothing about me that makes me big. I'm small. But this is what I do know. I am his. And you are his. And if I am his, the question is, am I small? Am I really that small? Because God states in his word that he has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. He uses the small things to bring strong men down, the weak things. He takes the small stuff and he makes it big. When we are partnered with Jesus Christ, when God takes up residence in us, when we've gone through that plan of salvation, we say, I've been saved. We haven't really been saved because God hasn't come back yet. But I get the notion. We understand the sentiment, right? We take a little bit of liberty there. Like if once we're saved, okay, and you understand what I mean when I say that. Once we have that relationship and we're walking with Jesus Christ, we're full of all the resources of heaven. What does Romans tell us? That we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That there is something in us that resides in us, that changes our name, that makes us become like him. Therefore, one day, it may not be in this life, although I I got to play the Powerball to win it, but I'm hoping if I ever decide to play the Powerball, I hope I, hope I hit that jackpot one day. I don't know. Got to play to win, and I don't play, but... But I know that there's something waiting on me down the line. There's something down the road for me. We're going to close out here. Let's all stand. But you know, this is the truth, though. We are members of a church. Now, for you, it's branches. For me, it's Oakwood First Church. For somebody in Tennessee, it's whatever it is, right? We are part of a local assembly, And that is by design. The word tells us that it is good that men and brethren dwell together, that we come together and that we worship God together. Why? Two people, Ecclesiastes 4 and 9 through 12, are better than one. For they can help each other succeed. 
If one person fails, the other can reach out and help. But someone who who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? Bear Grylls will tell you that, right? Snuggle up. Get your pride off. If you're stuck in the wilderness, you can snuggle up next to your partner and share that body heat. But what do you do if you're by yourself? (laughs) A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided or a Bible. The King James says a threefold cord is not easily broken. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of the, garment, of the garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, the Bible says, for there the Lord commanded a blessing, even life forevermore. What's the power of a penny? By itself, not a whole lot. A penny's not worth a bunch unless there's more pennies. When I was 18 and graduated high school, I started as a teller in banking. And uh, I remember a guy. He would come in. He had a business. He had vending machines. And he would come in every week and cash in all the the change. But it was always silver, never copper. It was always nickels, dimes, and quarters, never pennies. And I asked him one day, I said, hey, where are all your pennies at? He said, well, I save them. I said, why do you save them? He said, because it's a penny. I was like, okay. He's like, I got some buckets at home. I said, well, look, man, we have a coin machine. You don't have to roll the coins anymore. We just dump it in there and it it calculates it. He's like, oh, really? I said, yeah. He said, okay, I'll bring some tomorrow. I'm like, okay, great. I hear the door open the next day, about lunchtime. Here comes this guy, and he has a cart. He's got five-gallon buckets full of pennies, two layers of pennies. He had to have 30, 40 pounds or, of, of gallons of buckets, uh, five-gallon buckets of, of pennies. I said, dude, that's a lot of pennies. He said, yeah, I know. I've been saving them. I've got some more in the truck. I'm going to go get them. He brings in two, three carts stacked. I mean, he's pulling. He's a grown man, and he's pulling like this. Like, he has to lean over to pull the cart full of pennies. I don't remember how much it was, but it was a lot. It was a lot. And I remember the Brinks guy coming to pick up the bags of pennies. He was so mad. <laughs> Nobody told him how we have a coin pickup. I don't know. I don't. I wasn't the guy to schedule that. He was not happy about that because it was just him, and he was lugging all these pennies in this truck. But you know what? That guy walked out of there with a lot of money, and I don't know what it was. He knew how many pennies he had. But there was just something about the concept of that it's just pennies. The power of a penny to him was a fat wallet. (laughs) It's a lot of money. He walked out with a lot of money that day. But what about me? I don't cost a whole lot. But don't you? 
A dollar's worth of pennies costs the mint a dollar forty-three. That's a forty-three cent loss for every dollar of pennies. It costs you and me thirty-nine million dollars a year to print pennies or strike pennies. I don't know what the terminology is for that. But Jesus looked at us and he said, they might just be a penny now, but when I'm done, they'll be a blood-covered penny. And for me, that's invaluable. There's a show that I like to watch uh, on, uh, I have it on my tablet, on the History Channel. I'm one of those nerds that likes, like, Antique Roadshow and, you know, people finding out the value of their stuff. And it always amazes me when people come in and they have coins. And it's just a regular coin. And they ask a guy, hey, how much is this worth? Oh, well, this one was printed in, you know, San Francisco in 1932. This penny is worth $11 million. How is a penny worth $11 million? It's about rarity. Usually those pennies were printed at the tail end of some sort of denomination changeover, and somebody has managed to preserve it through chance over decades, and it just gains in value. And because there's not a lot of them, it makes it worth a lot. And that's Jesus' message to the church. You may not think you're worth a lot. You may be struggling mentally with all this stuff that's going on out there. You may not know what happens tomorrow or what's coming your way, but you are valuable enough for me that I spent my whole life doing the right thing on this earth, not sinning, not doing what I had the right to do as an eternal king in heaven so that you could decide if you want to be with me or not. That's a big risk. And if I think about all of the millions or billions or however many people through the generations from Adam and Eve to today have decided to walk away from Jesus and are probably not spending an eternity with him, I have to ask myself, like, what in the world? Why, Why, God? Why? And it's because he's not looking at the ones that didn't make it anymore. He's looking at you and me because we still have that choice. And I can choose. And it's valuable to him. I know we're social distancing. We're going to try and be wise here. I'm not going to give an altar call, but I would ask that you bow your head. And there's something about the word of God that can inspire change, that can encourage the grace and the mercy written on the pages or in the text of our iPads and our cell phones. Jesus wants his church to recognize their value. And though we are small individually, we are strong collectively. And even if it's just one of us that makes it, it'll have been worth it to him. God, I love you. I thank you. You are good beyond measure. 
you love me more than anything. And I know, God, that you love these people. We are your creation. You are after us. You hunger for our communion with you. And so today, we extend our eyes, our hearts, our hands, and whatever's comfortable. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to walk among us. You're here. I feel your presence. And I know that the power that I have in me can do the things that Gideon and that David did, the greats of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because this world needs saving. It needs a Savior, and you're that Savior. And so we reach to you, we look to you, we ask that you would be with us today. The ladies are going to sing. If you'll just spend a few minutes with Jesus, and I think at that point one of them is going to take it.